Okay, folks, I think, uh, uh, good afternoon. Let's get started, this time on time. Okay, now this, uh, uh, this session is going to move us uh, further along uh, on this path from uh, learning management systems to uh, whatever that, uh, I thought cute acronym was, well, into uh, learning technology services, enterprise services. Uh, and uh, there are two particular uh, streams over here. One stream which uh, looks at uh, architecture and frameworks that enable interoperability, that enable porting of code, that enable us to have a coherent way of approaching these uh, uh, educational application support services uh, at our institutions. The second, which is sort of a dependence over here, is the second stream has to do with uh, uh, standards. Now, when we talk about uh, standards in this realm, uh, it's the whole gamut. It, it goes from, uh, you know, from graphical interchange formats uh, to standards for packaging uh, content, standards uh, for uh, uh, sequencing and uh, you know, uh, standards are different layers of uh, that are involved in the learning practice. Uh, we're going to start off with uh, the folks at Harvard uh, who have uh, launched their iCommons effort in order to uh, bring some uh, coherence and commonness to their uh, education technology application learning management system application space. Uh, we're going to follow it up with. Uh, uh, a presentation on OKI, uh, uh, what motivated it, where, it, where it's at, and how it presents an architecture to enable a whole bunch of educational applications, including those that provide learning uh, management system functionalities, and uh, move on to hear some things about particular standards efforts, uh, particularly from the uh, IEEE realm, uh, which are uh, quite pertinent uh, to this realm of uh, uh, educational practice. Good afternoon. I'm not sure that it's um, <clears throat> in honor strategically to be placed um, uh, in the presentation in a dark room immediately after lunch. But so if any heads nod back in the middle of my uh, talk, I'll understand it. Um, my colleague Jim Farley and I are here to tell a remarkable tale of sharing collaboration and technology transfer, particularly since those particular uh, uh, characteristics um, are not deeply embedded in Harvard's uh, history. Um, I'm going to start uh, with a very brief um, uh, overview of what's been happening on the course management side of things. Uh, and then Jim will spend the bulk of our time uh, talking about uh, a larger initiative that's emerged from collaboration on course management systems. Our tale begins in 1995 or so in uh, the Harvard Business School, where a new dean, Kim Clark, uh, entered the scene and said essentially he proclaimed that um, the business of the business school will be done on the web. And those of you not interested in doing business on the web simply won't be doing business with the business school. And he uh, allocated um, a, a good chunk of change and a bunch of resources to create a comprehensive internet, intranet really, that um, um, uh, would cover uh, both instructional and um, administrative activities of the school. Now, at the same time, across the river, in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, an important archaeological uh, discovery was made by me, 
by excavating under a pile of dust and um, Novell networking books that were held up by this uh, next station just like this in a colleague's office. And I uh, bartered that machine away from him uh, for the price of uh, lunch at the Tasty Diner, which is featured uh, in Goodwill Hunting in Harvard Square. And the motto of the Tasty Diner was, food so good they built Harvard around it. Might be disputed, I suppose, in any number of different levels. At any rate, this machine then became the, um, uh, the fir- what we think, anyway, is the first dedicated centralized um, a server for course websites in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Now, these two very different trajectories uh, in the business school and in FAS toward, toward uh, similar goals have been reconciled in the last couple of years by powerful forces of convergence, uh, where in HBS there was a strong top-down mandate uh, to go online. In FAS, it was more of a grassroots uh, Horatio Alger story, I think. And we've been brought together um, in the last few years, um, and that story, that particular tale, begins in around 1999, about the height of the worldwide hysteria over online learning, uh, in which we were all uh, in the grips, in the grips of uh, that hysteria, I'm sure. Harvard at that time spent um, a lot of time thinking about how to position itself in uh, the marketplace. And visiting committees were assembled, and uh, internal committees were assembled, and some very interesting conclusions were reached. And one of the most significant conclusions, and lasting, is that there was, there was a, quite a discrepancy and a lot of variability between, within Harvard schools as to the uh, ability uh, to deploy in, uh, infrastructure in support of online learning and uh, the quality of the implementations across the different schools uh, varied considerably, and that something ought to be done to reconcile those differences. Uh, so around uh, 1999 or 2000, uh, an internal committee was assembled where, and we invited vendors in just as uh, in a process quite similar uh, to that uh, we heard from uh, Wisconsin this morning. Um, and instead of deciding to purchase a system, though, we decided to harvest the best-of-breed tools from around the university and deploy them in a generic way for anyone at the university to use. Thus, in in 2001, a group from the Central Administration IT called iCommons was created. My group is uh, the Instructional Computing Group in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, so I'm not really part of iCommons. iCommons was created then to to take in these uh, tools and adopt them for generic use. They took in our course platform from the Faculty of Arts and Sciences to serve as the core um, uh, shell-creating uh, device or application for, uh, for course websites, and a number of tools from the business school, such as a polling tool and a video presentation tool. <clears throat> After they uh, uh, adopted the uh, software that they inherited, they discovered that, that adopting inherited software that had been ripped from its moorings, uh, the topology of a specific school, might not be much easier than building new software, so we ought to address those issues. And the deans of the business school and FAS, in conjunction with the provost's office, agreed that we should do more than just uh, harvest these tools. We should create an architectural technical framework that would uh, create a roadmap, if you will, for ongoing and sustainable collaboration across the university. And it's that framework that Jim will describe in a few minutes. But the genesis of that framework and that initiative uh, was really in collaboration um, over course management systems. So I thought that I'd just spend a minute uh, telling that story, uh, just a uh, very brief amount of time. Tracing the history of this collaboration then, 1998, 
This is uh, this pie chart represents uh, the the scenario at Harvard with regard to course websites. The pie represents uh, all of the courses offered at Harvard University across all the different schools at any given moment. And each of the slices is roughly proportional in size to the number of courses in, in that faculty. So here is FAS, and that's our slice of the pie, and that's the Harvard Business School. And you can see that at 1998, in 1998, there were really only two schools at Harvard that were systematically and programmatically providing websites for courses in the curriculum. Shift to the year 2000, and the scenario has changed again. Every course, it seems, or every faculty was doing something uh, to support online learning in their schools, but there are a wide variety of different solutions and uh, a, a high variability in the quality um, and sustainability of those initiatives. The current situation is as follows. We now have 80% or so, you can't, uh, these slices here, 80% or so of courses offered at the university at any one time using the same course management system, which is what we call the instructor's toolkit from, uh, from my group, the instructor, instructional computing group. In fact, it's even more significant than that. As of last week, 80% the, the of the courses will be using exactly the same code base because we've merged code bases so that um, the iCommons deployment and the FAS deployment um, are, are uh, sh uh, sharing a repository. That means that if there's a bug in a tool and iCommons fixes it, we can inherit it. If there's a new tool that's developed for iCommons, FAS can inherit it. Uh, so we're leveraging common development goals and really taking advantage of some significant collaboration. Let me give you a quick tour of what the toolkit looks like. I'm going to go through uh, screenshots um, uh, very, very quickly. Uh, this is uh, a typical course homepage from the FAS deployment. In this case, uh, that's Professor Ted Bester has um, uh, elected this particular page style, and it's, it's actually a graph paper motif with a kind of futuristic globe uh, up at the top there. Um, he selected this particular page style from eight other uh, attractive page styles that we have to offer in the toolkit. He's elected to um, inst uh, install these uh, features in his course website, so many of which he's named on his own. He's uh, specified the order in which they're listed, um, and he's even elected to uh, write justify their listing rather than center them or left justify them, uh, a feature that a dean in FAS insisted that we put in place. So we dropped everything and, and made it happen immediately, of course. Um, he pressed a button, and he's customized uh, some information here, and he pressed a button, and his home page is created for him. On the second level pages, we have dynamically generated pages here um, with a bunch of documents that students can click on. Uh, Professor Bester has annotated the, um, uh, the items and uh, specified the order in which they're listed, and this fall he'll be able to schedule their appearance and disappearance. On the administrative side, one would log into the instructor's toolkit and get a list of uh, all the files and folders in the, uh, uh, in the website and be able to set permissions on them and so on. Uh, administer tools by clicking on any of these tools that you've installed. You can uh, select from any number of different tools and folders and create your own folders to serve as features on your course website. Um, we are plugged in, of course, to this uh, registrar's system. So here I'm customizing my home page with custom text and optionally the official course description and exam meeting times and so on and so forth. Here are the eight different attractive page styles that you can choose from. And of course, uh, we have uh, all sorts of uh, enrollment-based functions that you would expect to find in a course management system, Facebooks and uh, email systems um, where you can see your students smiling, happy faces. None of, none of them look as happy as I do, though, for some reason. 
Um, the, uh, end, from the uh, student's perspective, the, um, uh, the, environment, the new deployment uh, of the toolkit is environmentally sensitive, so it understands when it should behave like a toolkit for the Harvard Summer School or the Harvard University Extension School or in the iCommons case, whether it's uh, a toolkit for the <clears throat> Graduate School of Education and School of Public Health or the Divinity School and so on and so forth. So it's an environmentally sensitive uh, single repository system at this point. Um, what's next, uh, we're working with iCommons on, um, primarily through iCommons, on the development of a new uh, sort of integrated web publishing um, portal system that they call iSites, which is based on a tool at the Harvard Business School called the Community School, which is like a portal with different units. These are very fuzzy screenshots here, uh, but it can be reskinned very easily to meet any number of different needs. And each of the um, portal units here are completely uh, customizable in terms of access and look and feel. Finally, um, uh, what's next for us in the course management system um, world? Uh, we're working on some new features, a grade book, and uh, we'd like to implement some sort of a web dev-like uh, file system management. Um, we are in, are in a unique position, I think, where we have um, in harvesting the best of breed tools, we found that we have very significant and valuable Perl-based assets and very significant and valuable Java-based assets. And so we're working very hard to try and integrate them uh, through a number of different solutions, and we'll continue to do that. Um, <clears throat> we're working on an application design framework uh, for the Perl side of things so that it'll be easier to accept um, uh, uh, contributions in the form of tools. We're working, as everybody else is, on library system uh, interoperability, including single sign-on issues and uh, data exchange standards and methods. And finally, we're just starting to think about institutional archiving uh, with a focus on websites and learning objects, whatever they are, and um, <coughs> uh, trying to uh, implement a plan for, uh, for uh, in instructional metadata standards. And we're working with the Harvard University Library on that front. That's the end of my tale. And now for uh, the interesting stuff that Jim has to tell about the uh, initiative that emerged from this uh, collaboration on the course management system front. I have a question. I noticed that uh, you had loaders, Blackboard, and some other systems on it. So are you planning to have one system across the board? Or <laughs> Right. <laughs> 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 There's some, some schools I think are, are entrenched in their decisions, and, and understandably so. Um, but I think um, the, you know, the scenario is, is very volatile and, and, and pliant right now. But you mean you mean really in this room or virtually? Harvard is not uh, determined by fiat from a 
Sorry for the switch, but uh, for various reasons I couldn't use Paul's computer as much as I would like to. So as Paul mentioned, um, we um, there were a couple of things that led us to think about an instructional framework at Harvard. Um, some of them you're probably familiar with from your own experiences, but um, in our world, I like to think of it as coming from two parents. One is iCommons, which Paul mentioned, um, which was an effort to take some existing tools, really, at the time, and generalize them, pull them together, generalize them, make them work together, and then turn them around and make them available in an ASP model to other schools um, that perhaps were looking for something, looking to move off of something else, whatever it might be. And the initial cut at those tools came from the FAS as well as the business school and, and a couple of smaller utilities here and there from other schools. And the other parent in this mix was uh, the, the Innovation Fund, uh, the Provost Innovation Fund grants. And uh, you think about how these play together, and really, I like to think of it, and, and Liz can correct me, is two, uh, two ends of the life cycle of these tool development projects. iCommons really came in and said, you've got some existing tools that are operational. Let's take those and, and generalize them. Provost funds come in saying, you, wanna, you have a new idea that you want to try and get off the ground. Let's try and, um, let's try and get that off the ground. And um, those two efforts and what came out of that made us learn a lot of things about what's possible in terms of leveraging instructional tools across um, several schools within one, one university. And um, you know, these are some of those things, and these are generalizable to just about any effort, but in our particular case, um, improving the process refers to how do we improve the way in which people think about and design and write and develop and make operational these tools such that they can be turned around and used by other folks. Um, defining the ground rules is a big thing we learned as we went, went through this. What do we mean by making these tools available in iCommons or funding a project to build an instructional tool that's supposed to be used by someone other than the group developing it? Um, and across the board, how do we sort of lower the barriers in terms of thinking about this sharing stuff? Because it's not always on the top of people's priority list. They want to get their tool out for their faculty to do good things um, and then think about the greater good. So the bottom line was, you know, how do we make this sustainable? How do we make collaboration sustainable? How do we make it pragmatic at the same time? You know, making that balance between um, the greater good and the pragmatic needs of, people, of the faculty that you're serving. So that, that and, and some of these other things, so expanding on our, on our motivations that led us to think about doing a framework effort. 
you know, we, we really wanted to get to that nirvana of having technology be frictionless. I've got a great thing. It works really well. Um, I'd like to give it to the folks across, you know, in, in, the, in the yard next door. Making that possible is difficult, as we all know. Um, that's the dull, the dull message. Um, so, in other words, you know, another way to think of it, we wanted to make the appropriate tool be defined not by technology and architecture and mundane, really, things like that. We wanted to be based on pedagogy and on learning experiences. And that's the right tool for my class. I'd like to use it. Well, sorry, you know, the technology isn't there to support it. We didn't want that to be the issue. Um, and when we did move things around, we liked the effort to be a configuration effort instead of a porting effort. And I think we all know what that, what that evil port word means. Um, and really going back to the core theme of the iCommons project, which was to leverage things. We wanted to be able to leverage things and to lower the barrier to leverage things. Um, another motivation was shifting the focus to the good stuff. And this you know, is a, as a quote that I heard on this old house. I don't know if that's the origin of it. but. You know, plumbing is great as long as you don't see it. And the same is true for the stuff that makes online tools available to faculty. They love, the, they love to look at the tools and use the tools. You start talking to them about why their students can't log into the tool and the blood rushes out of their face and the wind goes out of their sails and they, they go back and uh, try and find another way to do it. And focusing on innovation and not on logistics and infrastructure. All this stuff is very important, obviously. It's the lifeblood of these tools. but. Um, we wanted people to be thinking primarily, instructional computing people especially, about innovating in terms of tools and in terms of learning practices. And we also wanted to improve the development process. We wanted to make it, you know, the usual CIO type things, make it cheaper, make it faster, all the, you know, the blah, blah, blah that you see on the, on the, ra on the trade rags. Um, but, you know, as, as much of that is sensible to do in this, in this kind of an environment, we wanted to have the shared framework really enable a collaborative environment. And this is a theme I'm sure we're going to hear. In, in various ways from other people, too. So we had some rather unique constraints, though. For one thing, we didn't have any incremental funding for this framework effort. We had existing funding for the iCommons effort, the parents of the, this effort, the iCommons effort, the Provost Innovation Funds and whatnot. Um, we did not have any additional funds to go out and hire a bunch of new developers to work on the framework, for example. So we had to really cast this in the light of riding on the carrier wave of other projects and on other resources that we had. And therefore, they had to be very pragmatic. We had to really serve those projects and those constituents directly, very directly. Um, if we interfered with a project, that was not going to fly. And um, focusing on um, the immediate needs of Harvard programs, so how we prioritized the services and utilities that we were going to build really needed to be driven by what is the big collaborative tool that's going to be built next for program Y? Um, what is the big effort that's going on in school X to do, um, to do the next round of, of evolution of their tools? And how can we ride that and, and cause that to, to, to emit some, some quality IP for the framework? Um, and all along the way, we were looking at um, external standards and collaboration. We saw this not only as a way for us to inject our own framework efforts into the existing development people were doing, but also to inject some of the ongoing industry standards like OKI and SCORM and various other things that are out there, because these were opportunities for doing a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, we weren't um, haughty enough to assume that we were the only people thinking of standards in the right way. There's lots of other standards out there that, that these people that we're dealing with would like to take advantage of, and we're looking for milestones to do that. And we saw our role as helping to identify some of those milestones as well. 
And also we wanted to, um, as we were thinking about how to do, strategically how to do this framework, there were a number of different ways of approaches we could have taken. And one of the things we needed to make sure we did is support a critical mass of the existing hosting environments at Harvard. If you look at what's at Harvard, as most large schools can attest, we had a little of everything. Um, you name the, the, the technology and the programming environment, we had someone using it for something. If we tried to cover everyone, we'd still be discussing what uh, would be in the framework. Um, so instead, we had to take a middle ground. We said, we need to get a critical mass of people who are doing instructional tools into this mix, but we can't possibly do a version of this framework for everybody. So for our case, within Harvard, that the right formula was to use Java and Perl, or to have the framework support Java and Perl. We had uh, a, a good chunk of developers at HBS and in, and in central administration doing Java development. We had an equally good chunk of developers doing Perl work at uh, the undergraduate school and some other places, too. Um, we have some good things going on in other environments, too, but we just said, look, we're going to have to cut our losses somewhere, and we're going to have to do, do it. This, this line's going to have to be drawn there. And again, we had an eye here as well. We were focusing on Harvard's existing infrastructure. We also had an eye on, well, when the day comes when we can turn to an external collaboration of some kind, what would be the good technologies to be, to be including in this? And again, Java and Pro are not bad candidates for that. You might want to include .NET. You might want to include some other things. But these didn't contradict that, that goal either. So we came up, and this is, this is something that's a little bit unique in terms of the approach that we took. Since we did decide to do a multi technology framework, we had to come up with a way to actually design the framework in a conceptual sense and then have actual physical implementations of it. And this, was, this scared us because it was reminiscent of things like CORBA and some other efforts I could mention where, you know, um, uh, paralysis ensues when you try and do something like this if you're not careful. So the approach we took was to really identify what's, what are we trying to get out of the commonality of the framework and what do we what, what things can be not common about the implementations of this framework. So if you imagine defining an API using some kind of modeling language of some kind, and how, 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 how equivalent do they need to be in Perl and Java in order for the benefits of the framework to still be there? And this is the process we came up with. So you know, walking through this flowchart, I'm not going to go through the thing in detail, but basically there's a shared conceptual design stage that we go through. So we sit around, Perl folks and Java folks sit around in a room, we say, we need something like this service that I'm describing. We design the thing down to the point of, you know, functionality in a conceptual level and define how we're going to implement the thing at a conceptual level and then go off and say, here's the Java folks, here's the Perl folks. They're actually build this thing against the design spec we came up with. And we periodically touch base between the two to make sure they're in sync and that they're still satisfying the conceptual design. But, you know, that gave us a good combination of freedom with some constraints around it in terms of, in terms of compatibility. And it's something that we've been talking on and off with, with other folks about in LKI and some other schools about how this has played out and how well um, or not well it's working out. And so far, it's been not hindering the development of the framework. It's, I think the jury is still out. I, I, Paul can correct me, but I think the jury is still out in terms of how well we still maintain the um, sort of compatibility benefits of a framework between the Perl and the Java folks. I think we're still learning about what that means, really. But um, it's, uh, the collaboration hasn't been impeded by the fact that we're doing Perl and Java, which is really what we were trying to do in the first place. So this is a picture that's reminiscent of other pictures that you've seen and, and, and will probably see in the future. Um, this, these are the services, again, in our, in our corner of the world uh, that we thought were a high priority to have in a, in a framework for online learning tools. And we're using the word service here 
roughly in the same way that I think OKI might or um, some other standards folks might, uh, might not be exactly the same. But um, I'm not going to talk about each one of these, but basically we, the important thing to take away from here is that we isolated infrastructure type services from business level services. So infrastructure meaning things like you know, the configuration of an application or, or talking to logging services or, or uh, authentication, talking to, to, to security services um, of various kinds as opposed to business level stuff that really defines this as an online learning framework. So things like courses and content and um, people of various kinds and their roles as faculty and students, all that kind of a thing. We isolated those two, A, because we knew the top stuff was really hard, um, but B, because we, we were looking again to the future where we might want to extend this to use in other domains such as administrative applications or external collaborations with other folks or integrating other standards into this mix. So we wanted, we re recognize that infrastructure could evolve in a different, um, a different time frame, different schedule than the business level stuff. And so, and, and also this helped us to prioritize what we would do. We realized, hey, we do have a foundation here um, that we need to do first. This other business stuff needs to come later. We can't possibly define that without the other. You know, so it helped to clarify things. We also, unfortunately, or fortunately, had to come up with a governance structure for this framework. And, you know, this is reminiscent of open source efforts that you might see out there. We have a group of, you know, shared repository of code. We have an oversight group that manages the architectural decisions about what the thing looks like, uh, what the actual coding standards are, whatnot, those kinds of things. And then we had two, we categorized two levels of users of the framework within Harvard. And this is really, to, again, to help foster the collaboration. We have um, actual users of the framework. So these are, these are folks that um, are clients, are customers, whatever you want to call it. They're folks that are out there developing tools and are looking for a solution for authentication. Um, so here you can download the, the, the library and use it. And they may feed back in issues and suggestions for changes, but they're not directly touching the framework code. Then there's actual framework developers who have you know, commit rights to the, to the repository, whatever you want to call it. They're actually involved in the definition of new versions of the framework and in, and in defining and owning different services in the framework. And then we have various releases that come out of this, hopefully, um, if things go well. And this is just a, an eye chart um, to show that uh, we do actually track status on these things. We have some things going on where, where again, we're focusing on the low-level infrastructure services at this point. We have a few things that are ready to go out now. We're actually using these in, in, in a few projects that are going live over the summer, some of the things that Paul mentioned. Um, and um, this also kind of tells you, shows you how we sort of track the, the timeline on these things in terms of their evolution. So again, we start out having some conceptual joint discussions about what the service is going to do in the first place in the conceptual level. And then we get into actually implementing things. And there's some, some feedback lines that I'm not drawing here where you go a certain level and then you have to jump back a little bit and iterate on, oh, I found out some things as I implemented this and I need to actually go back and fix the design. But eventually you end up with a release and then you, you know, rinse and repeat. Um, there's never a final release of anything and we're, not, we're no exception. So some futures, some near-term futures and far-term futures. And, and, you know, this this was surprising. You know, Paul and I didn't collaborate on our futures slides. And uh, when we looked at them, we found that we had largely the same things on them, which was kind of encouraging. Um, one thing we need to do next, obviously, is start to focus on that business layer, because that's really going to help us um, to, A, verify this idea of a, of a, of a, of a framework. 
but also it's it's really the meat of what we're trying to do. It really is the online learning part of what we're trying to do. Um, the infrastructure stuff's important, but but um, it needs to get to that level before we can really say it's been successful. Content, obviously, you know, we recognize that that the heart of what we're doing is all about content, and as many people have already mentioned, you know, content is something we're aiming at. And we'd like to address directly in our framework in some way, and this is really leading us even more to start to. To, to, to get dangerously close to pulling in all these external standards. So this is where you really need to be talking about SCORM compliance and OKI compliance and all, and all those kinds of things. And, um, you know, we, like everyone else, we're, we're thinking about it in two senses. There's this um, rather informal sense of content, you know, repositories of images in a, in a file system or, or web dev servers that are hosting documents and things like that, all the way up to very formal archival library collections where the rules and regulations and the metadata that are hold are very very different um, and also you know we're looking at how to evolve the community that we've built up around the framework how do we keep these Harvard folks that are doing development um, effective and yet working together on what they're doing and um, we find that we're continuously redrawing this line between what is pragmatic and what is sort of cosmetic about what we're, what we're doing in terms of the framework. And, um, you know, we're, we're learning where that line is drawn as well. And that's been very interesting. And um, we're also some, some more mundane things when you talk about frameworks, and the OKI folks can, can attest to this. When you start talking about building these frameworks, um, performance issues creep in and start to spoil the waters in terms of your esoteric purity. And you have to actually think about how do I actually make this thing run fast? And if I want to keep to this nice, clean, portable API that makes my tools migrate easily between people, well, I might not have the fastest implementation in the world if I do that. So you end up iterating again and figuring out. We're already hitting that on a lot of the services that we're implementing. Um, and then just keeping the faith of everyone that's involved. They're all, like I said, they're all running, they're uh, providing these resources on the backs of projects at the schools and at, at uh, the faculties. Um, they have to keep their eye on the real, very real deadlines that they have in their local environments and at the same time keep the faith about staying pure to the framework. So we're constantly having to, to, to um, play uh, the UN in that sense. That's, uh, that's all I had. Are we going to, do we have any questions? Yeah, that is true. Yeah, and, and that's a, an amazingly large size, but there are people at different faculties all around who came together in this in this common effort. Right. And you get a lot out of 20 people when you organize this kind of. Right. Event. Yeah. So Frank's commenting on the number of resources that we found. We went across Harvard, all the schools at Harvard, and pulled together all the people that could that were doing things that could play into this framework. We ended up with about 20, 24 people now involved in this, um, and yet they've been able to do some pretty amazing things. So. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, um, I need some help with that. I can probably do it to some degree, but I'll probably get it wrong. So the question was, um, how does this breakdown of services coincide with how OKI has broken down their services? Um, I could claim that we came up with this on our own, but I'd be lying. Um, you know, we, I think OKI breaks down their services sort of the same way. You have a, an infrastructure layer and a more 
business-oriented layer. Um, ex there, there, are some, there are some overlaps or some different categorizations here from what OKI has done. For example, I think what we define as persistence is different, different from what, what OKI defines as persistence. Um, I think OKI has two different persistence services or services related to persistence. Ours is only focusing on one of those. Um, it's a high-level sort of design pattern type persistence service. Um, I don't think that OKI is trying to do testing services, for example, because that's not really, that's sort of an undercutting implementation detail of the services, I believe. Again, I don't want to speak totally for OKI, but there's some, there's some subtle differences, but. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm using testing. I'm, I'm using testing in the software development sense, not in the assessment test, sorry, yeah. Right, right. So, right. So there's there's some alignment and some misalignment, I think. But yeah. Yeah. No, the, the twenty. There, there, there is no one at this university that is strictly working on the framework. They're working on the framework as a part of working on projects. Um, so those twenty people are people that are working on instructional. Development, development of instructional tools, and spending, you know, aligning their, uh, aligning their design, their development around the framework with our help. So it's a piece of 20 people. Yeah. Right, so the question is, how is OKI going to get integrated into this framework after in the future? We don't really know right now. We're waiting for, um, what, we, what we have done to date is, is really watched OKI, made sure that what we're doing is not incompatible with what they're doing. We haven't yet gone to the degree of making this OKI compliant, but if and when we get to the day when we need to do that, then we will. And we don't really know what that opportunity is going to be. Uh, it could be something that comes out of a meeting like this for all we know. Um, in fact, that's why, if you go back to your previous slide, because of, because of, no, not this one, the, but anyway, the point was about evolving the community, and you're trying to do it within Harvard, and I think right. it's the same set of questions. Right. Exactly, exactly, and that's that's why that's there, yeah. So Vijay's commenting on the, the community that we mentioned, you're evolving the community, and it's analogous to what OKI is doing in terms of the global, really, community. Right, right. Anything else? Okay. You up next? Thanks. Are you okay? Here you go, sir. Is this free? You want to sit here? Oh, your oh, your gadgets with your big Um, actually, Paul and Jim's presentations were very good lead-in to OKI. Um, 
what they've done at Harvard is, is for the schools of Harvard, is, is, is similar to what we have been attempting to do with um, uh, a wide variety of diverse institutions. Um, I think our problem is slightly less complex. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> uh, Vijay wanted to make sure that I that I touched on on some things. Uh, uh, these slides that um, he had created to to sort of frame the afternoon's discussion with a, a number of, of, of questions and, 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 and statements. And so what. Um, Got it. Is this better? Okay. Um, the idea that you have enterprise systems, it might be a learning management system, it might be a student information system, it might be a digital library system, it might be a human resource system, what, whatever those might be, that uh, one way to achieve interoperability is to share data between them. Uh, take take, take uh, large or small um, uh, chunks of data, package it up, send it over, unpackage it, and, 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 and deal with it. And these are very important types of interoperability specifications. I'll talk more about dimensions of interoperability later. But as we were looking at what we wanted to do, which was lower the bar for people to develop applications, and, and, and instead of promoting data exchange, actually promote application or tool or code exchange, uh, we realized that these specs didn't go all the way. And I think Robbie Robson from Edgeworks, who a number of you know, um, uh, stated this very nicely. He said, you know, these specs to date have been defining the nouns of interoperability uh, and where we need to be is, is defining the verbs. Um, and, and when you think about child development, uh, it, 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 it is true that you know, we tend to learn nouns first and then we learn what to do with them better. And, and that, that's where we are and that's where we started to, to tackle the problem with, with, with OKI. So here's my little infamous OKI in a nutshell slide. 
basically says, well, an application before OKI, um, uh, what we've been building to date have been applications where a lot of functionality, uh, core functionality, enterprise functionality, is really tied up in the code of that application. Um, things like how the application uh, uh, ties in with enterprise authentication systems, enterprise authorization systems, file, filing service, database services, um, student information systems, or, or digital repository, digital library systems. These tend to get baked into code. Um, and what we said is, well, let, let's really take a, 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 a service-based approach to this and, and, and really look at teasing those pieces, identifying what they are, and teasing them out, and begin thinking of them as, 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 uh, as, as enterprise services. Um, uh, so those little uh, colorful ovals have now, have now come apart. We've identified, uh, uh, to date, 16 of these that we've scoped uh, within the OKI project. Uh, and are delivering now as as um, as open service interface definitions. One thing I always want to show, and I usually show it later on in the in the slides, but I'm going to show it here, is that early on with OKI, we also made the decision that we weren't going to focus just on web-based applications. We wanted to focus on the problems of of, of client-side applications as as well. So if you take the little circles and, and ovals and, and, and such and, and, and tease them out into more of a hardware view. Here is a typical way that one might use it. So right now, uh, Craig Counterman and his team are in the process of, of doing this with Stellar, which is MIT's um, uh, internal LMS, and, uh, and breaking them out. Where in, the, where in this case, the, 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 the services themselves, the code that the application talks to is actually um, uh, uh, on a server. And just going back to my previous slide, slide real quick, one thing I didn't point out here is that um, in the case of OKI, what we're really concentrating on are these, are these definitions, are these, are these interfaces between applications and services. And I'm going to get into more detail about that a little later. So in the case of a web-based application, those definitions typically lie on the web server. Um, so the multiple applications in that environment can have access to all the various pieces of, uh, of uh, uh, enterprise services and functionality that are, that are out in the world, but that the same model might apply to a, to a client-side application, uh, where in this case, where this might be a, 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 an application that, say, Tufts is developing called View that I hope to show later. Uh, the services are actually local to the machine, uh, but taking advantage of the same infrastructure through the same but through the same uh, uh, interface definitions as, uh, uh, as a web-based application. So what is OKI? O OKI is really about um, defining a learning technology services architecture, similar very, uh, in, in, in many, many ways to what, uh, to what uh, Harvard has done. And we're doing it through uh, the publication of what we're calling uh, open service interface definitions, or OSIDs. So if you get our current JAR file, it's all org.osid. Um, uh, and 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 uh, producing those, uh, publishing those, publishing open source implementations. So everything below the line, uh, uh, implementations of, of 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 those, and some open source educational applications and other applications that that um, uh, help uh, exemplify how you how you use these and 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 the benefits you might get. And lastly, uh, we're slowly building a community of of of, of developers who are who are doing these things. Real briefly, what OSIDs are, 
um, again, like the drawing, uh, defining how components of a learning technology communicate with each other, with, uh, oh, excuse me, with, 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 with other learning technology components, um, campus systems, infrastructure services, things like authentication, authorization, filing, logging systems, what, what have you. Um, uh, and, and what we're doing is we're describing these things abstractly, but we're casting them as Java APIs for now. The majority of our institutional partners are doing their work in, 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 in Java, and this made sense as a first approach. Um, we're producing them. If you look, if you look at our license, uh, which you can find, which is one of the things you can find on our website right now, um, uh, uh, the license is very open. It's, it's what we call the MIT license. It's basically the same license that the X Consortium was working around and, 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 and such. And we're trying through the license and through branding of OKI to uh, limit the ability of other uh, entities to modify these things and, 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 um, and distribute them in a way that would be harmful to the goals of interoperability. And again, supported by reference implementations and documentation, which is what the team in MIT and elsewhere are busy doing as we speak. Um, here are the OSIDs. I, I used to have a layered diagram. Many of you might have seen similar to the one Harvard. Um, I don't have that here. But to give you an idea of how we've sort of conceptually um, uh, think about these various services, um, uh, we used to just talk about common services and educational services. Um, uh, uh, we've sort of added, taken a few of those common services and, 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 and teased them apart. But um, here's where you can start to see, whoever asked, where, where, where some of this, um, the similarity, similarities might be. Uh, we have, we've tackled the problems of authentication, authorization. Um, uh, a few uh, ways of doing persistence, which include the database connectivity, filing, and actually digital repository uh, services. Um, uh, logging, uh, I know was, was mapping to the previous presentation. We have other services. Uh, uh, the dictionary service is intended to help with a number of, of uh, contextual issues where you may want to have, to make it easy for developers to, to uh, uh, have a place for developers to put dictionary information like uh, uh, language differences or other contextual differences uh, such as uh, this application runs different on a handheld than it does on a laptop. Uh, uh, we tackled hierarchy. We noticed that over and over again in educational applications, the, uh, uh, hierarchies arise. Uh, hierarchies, institutional hierarchies, departments, labs, centers, and how those expand out. Hierarchies around how we how we um, organize content and, and 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 how we organize groups and, and that sort of thing. So we provided as a separate service hierarchy service that an application can decide to use for any which way it pleases. Um, under the extended services category, we're we've been uh, tackling um, user messaging, which is a service that would cover up um, things like chat, discussion, or or, or mail uh, type interactions at, at a very low level. Uh, scheduling services that would cover up um, uh, many of the things that that uh, enterprise calendaring might provide, and and workflow. Um, I think Brad had mentioned that, for instance, for Indiana, having a, a a a a an enterprise workflow service has bubbled to the top as a very important uh, piece of their infrastructure. Well, even before we started talking to Indiana, we'd realized that too, and that was a a, a service level thing that we needed to tackle. At the quote educational services level, 
we've been uh, working on uh, what we call class admin, which is, uh, uh, think of it as the, as the um, boundary between a, an educational, uh, a piece of educational software and student information systems, HR systems, whatever, sort, whatever sorts of systems on our campuses we might get people information from and information about uh, 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 courses and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, digital repository, which I'll go into a lot more detail. Uh, assessment, um, and, and a lot of the assessment work is being done very tightly, as, as was mentioned, with, uh, with the efforts of Indiana, uh, Michigan, and, and, and Stanford in their Navigo project. At MIT, we've made the decision, at least uh, currently, we're not going to build an assessment tool because there's so many other people doing it. And right now, it's not a terribly high priority for our faculty, so we can wait a little bit and, and see what uh, best of breed comes, comes out. Uh, and finally, um, uh, uh, issues relating to grading. I mentioned that we're doing these abstractly. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think similar to the, the flow diagram that, um, that Jim had, uh, the majority of work in, in, in doing service-based architectural design has nothing to do with the language uh, or other technology considerations in the back end. Um, the majority of work is really teasing apart functionality, trying to find ways to, uh, 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 to allow, uh, uh, for instance, authentication and authorization uh, to be thought of to be designed as separate entities if you want, uh, to be designed as, as linked entities if you want, and then think about the problems relating to that. Uh, so factoring the problem is, 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 a, is a big part of the, of the, of the process, and for us, we found it takes nine months to a year of effort to really to really do that uh, with the help of our of our institutional partners with the iterative process that we we've had all along doing this um, and and currently it takes us literally seconds to pop that into Java so that's the least of our worries is how we get into Java and the reason we do this is we're actually using a um, uh, as of about December we started using an internal language. Uh, to, to write abstract service interface definitions. Um, uh, it's not a language that we're proud of, not a language we're going to publish, uh, but part of our next phase of OKI as we get into the summer is, is, is to actually cast that in a way that we feel we can publish it. Uh, what has allowed us to do is, is, is generate multiple bindings of, of the OKI services. So for instance, we're doing a Java interface binding that's given. Uh, as we write documentation, Large portions of the documentation are just prettied up versions of the Java doc. Well, you want that to be, you want it to be easy to, to cast that into, into documentation formats, RTF formats or whatever. But we've also been working with a number of other um, uh, uh, language domains. So uh, in particular, uh, uh, a number of folks who've been doing Perl development our discussions with Harvard, with the University of Washington, uh, with North Carolina State um, uh, and elsewhere, uh, Michigan State, um, uh, we learned a lot about where our pre-December service interface specs were Java dependent and how we could then pull that Java dependence out and put it in the generator code and, and, and let the service definition stand above that as an abstract definition. Uh, so uh, one activity that we know has happened, for instance, is uh, Jim Blair at, uh, at uh, North Carolina State has, um, has already taken uh, abstract OKI definitions 
and written a generator that pump, pumps them out as, as, Perl, as Perl code. He's gone so far as pumping it out as Perl code with hooks to Java, so all that code can be automatically generated. So if we change a service interface definition as part of the iteration process, all he has to do is pump to the code and he gets the Perl out. We've been working with folks in the C-sharp development community in, in similar way. So this is one way we see to take the work we've done in OKI and, 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 and gain immediate, immediate benefit in other, um, uh, for other technology choices. Just real briefly, here's um, a list of, of some of the um, uh, uh, interesting projects that are currently using OKI, uh, developing against OKI. Uh, Phil already talked about Stellar, um, uh, Michigan's um, Chef project, Stanford University's coursework. Uh, Stanford already has a version of coursework that uses uh, one OSID that they're actually uh, um, uh, distributing uh, to uh, uh, some, close, some close collaborators uh, who are using it, and, and they're in the process of adding more of the OSIDs into that product. And, um, and OnCourse, in fact, this morning was the first I'd ever heard um, uh, anyone from Indiana talk about OnCourse as being provided as an open source thing. Um, maybe I missed that message, but it's a wonderful thing to hear. That's tremendous. tremendous. Um, there's a project out of Tufts University that I'll try to show a quick demo of called View that is actually a client-based application that's very intriguing. I sh we sh I've shown it to a number of faculty and a number of presentations who've gone gaga over it. It's neat stuff. Um, uh, University of Cambridge has been working on a number of things. Their SCORM player is one of the ones that they've done most of the OKI work against. And then we have some digital library systems, open source ones, DSpace and Fedora. Uh, that both through various um, uh, uh, funding sources are doing OKI-based effort, uh, either uh, to, to build those applications on top of OKI common services or to expose the repositories themselves through the OKI um, DR service. Uh, the Fedora project is tightly linked with Tufts. The Tufts View product at Tufts will use Fedora in the back end for, um, for uh, storing... Um, learning content. This is the current OKI uh, SID community. Um, we are, as I'll mention on the next slide, we are currently distributing 1.0 release candidate versions of most of the stuff and actually um, late 0 0.8, 0 0.9 versions of, of a few of these things to this community. So. Um, uh, currently, the core partners of, of OKI have access to all this stuff. Uh, the IMS Global Learning Consortium members, this is about 60 or 70 members, including vendors, including Blackboard and WebCT. This is why Mike, uh, Matt Patinsky could all of a sudden say, gosh, we now know what OKI is. We can start using it because they started seeing the code for the first time about two months ago as we made it available to these communities. Um, um, and then assorted institutional pro projects that are coming our way. Uh, for instance, we met uh, just last week with, uh, a group of wonderful programmers from Middlebury College who have a project called, um, I'm forgetting the name of their, of their product, uh, Segway. It's not a thing you ride on, it's actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, uh, they're actually um, uh, uh, not Java developers, they're, they're, they're PHP developers. Uh, and they're looking at all this stuff now and, and trying to decide what to do with it. So 
we have a growing list. Uh, we're not public with everything yet, but that's coming real soon. Um, the common service OSIDs uh, are currently in 1.0. We're considering sort of a release, a release candidate phase. It was important to put the 1.0 on it at some point because then people were actually started developing against it. Uh, you got 0. something, and you know, uh, and this has really worked for us because between the, some of the IMS members who are using this and our own core OKI partners, we're getting a lot of feedback on this stuff. Uh, we're doing some minor tweaking um, as we move toward a, a SourceForge publication, uh, which we expect real soon. Uh, we've, expecting that, we've been expecting that soon for about a month now, um, but we think it's going to be really soon. The, the, the date that I've uh, imposed upon the, the team is, is May 15th. This, the, the common services should be on SourceForge. That will likely still be release candidate moniker on it uh, uh, for a public comment period of some sort. Um, uh, the educational services are still in beta release, um, although we have some interesting development activity against some of them. The, the, the assessment work happening, uh, a lot of the, the, um, uh, uh, the digital repository work. Um, Reference implementations and reference code are available for some of the OSIDs, and, and, and currently we have two developers who are busily um, trying to create reference implementations of all of those uh, before we get them published, which we'll probably miss that deadline, but, but as you watch SourceForge, uh, those should be coming available. Um, and we expect some of these LMS systems to become available in the summer. Uh, like I say, Stanford's, they're already distributing the coursework tools, which are uh, a very nice set of tools. They're already distributing to uh, a, a limited group and, and, and trying to decide how they're going to distribute that more widely. We're working on Stellar and trying to come up with a name for Stellar that our legal office will let us distribute it under because we have some trademark problems there. Um, uh, but those should all be coming out uh, uh, pretty soon. The other thing that we're intending to release around the same time is this thing we're calling the OKI Starter Kit. It'll initially be common services only, but a, a package of, of more than just reference implementations, uh, some level of... of um, production quality uh, to begin running some of these applications on. So if you, if you uh, uh, find that you like what Tufts is doing and you want to uh, take it and play with it, uh, the starter kit will hopefully give you a, a platform to get started with that before you can, until some time as you can begin plugging in your own uh, enterprise production services. I want to talk briefly about vendor engagement. There's been a lot of discussion here um, about Blackboard in particular. Um, we're also talking to um, Sun Microsystems and Apple Corporation uh, around some interesting, interesting things. Um, uh, for instance, with Sun, uh, uh, both uh, the MIT team at OKI and, and, and the Sun e-learning architecture team are very eager to have a, uh, a, a, a Sun One certified um, implementation of uh, core OKI services. So we're working with the Sun e-learning architecture team to figure out how to do that. Uh, similarly with Apple, we've been talking with them on a number of fronts. Um, the WebCT and Blackboard picture uh, is very interesting to us. I can't add much more to what people have said about Blackboard, except the yes, I have presented with, uh, uh, with various Blackboard people in front of audiences, and Blackboard has some really nice um, uh, uh, presentations that show how they see OKI fitting into the product, and we think those are, looks very sane. Um, what I can say about WebCT is they have a developer on staff that's working very closely with us right now. Um, so activity is happening in, in, in these places, and you can take away from that what you wish. 
Uh, we have a major event planned for the week of July 7th um, this summer. Uh, we're currently calling it the OKI, the, the Interoperability Lab 2003, uh, jointly hosted by IMS and OKI. It'll be happening in, in, uh, in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. And uh, uh, we expect to be showing a lot. One of the things we're going to have is sort of a plug fest floor. We're going to bring some OKI implementations into the room and a number of applications that are being developed and see how they interoperate. Let me just give an example. I don't know how I'm doing on time. Um, I think to help, it often helps folks to understand exactly what the uh, OSIDs are all about to show this particular example. Uh, this is actually an, an old demo that we did. It's using a very old version of the DROSID. It needs to be updated, but I think it's, uh, it'll be fairly, um, uh, fairly good. Um, so the digital repository OSID, um, we ask ourselves a number of questions. Uh, uh, and these are the sort of the types of questions we ask for any service that we tackle. Um, what functions does an educational application need of this service? What are the things that we feel are important today? That might change in a year or two, but important today for, um, uh, for educational ac applications to get from and, in, and, 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 uh, and deal with uh, as, as they're working with various kinds of digital repositories. Um, how can we complement existing data specifications? Um, this, is some, this is something that's key. It, 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 and it's taken a lot of engineering, but um, uh, we have been trying as much as possible to separate uh, the functional qualities of a service from the data that that service manages. And you'll see this in the, in, the, in, in, in the example. So a lot of folks ask, well, how does this relate to IMS or SCORM or IEEE LOM? Well, the answer is we're supportive of those things. We're not defining a spec that steps on any of those. In fact, one of the assumptions we're making is that we're always going to have many types of, of data and metadata specifications. We need an architecture that takes that into account. Uh, we're not, from the OKI standpoint, prescribing any one or, or, or of them we're saying. They're out there, and as a community, we're going to tackle them, but uh, OKI is helping to provide the buckets to put those things in. Um, how do we allow for systems of record for digital assets? So a lot of times when we're thinking about data exchange, we think about bringing an asset from a system of record and, 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 and copying it into the, the LMS. Well, we can support that through the OKI OSID, uh, DRO SID, but we might actually want to start moving in a direction where we keep the assets in place, depending on repository in question, whether or not we have 24 by 7 access to it, what the um, bandwidth uh, of that repository is, and, and, and such. We want to be able to allow for that. Um, and how do we support multiple repositories? And in fact, every OKI OSID supports multiple implementations at runtime. Uh, the OKI stuff is all late binding. So, so the binding to implementations happens at runtime, and binding to multiple implementations can happen at runtime. And you'll see that with this particular, with this particular OSID. Um, so here's the problem. We have an educational application running here. I'm showing it a, a desktop app, just to make a point. Uh, but this could be an application. This could be a server pumping out its stuff via HTML or XML or whatever uh, through portals or whatnot. And this, um, this application is living in a fairly complex world of digital repositories. It's living in a complex world around a lot of the services. But we're just talking about digital repositories for now. Um, where there may be institutional repositories. Some of those might be departmental stores of, 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 of assets. 
Some of those might be assets that are in a in a uh, institutional digital library system. Some of them might be assets on some developer's uh, machine under their desk. Um, it's living in a in a world where there's remote assets. It might be the Merlot database. It might be a publishing house that has that has content that they want to make available that this this application wants to have access to. It might be truly local. It might be that I slip the CD into the machine and I want my application to see that too. Right? This is pretty complex. I think it's more complex because there's many protocols in the in, in the business these days. Uh, I think we'd all like it if everybody agreed on one protocol, but I we're making the bet that's not going to happen. Not in the near future, not ever. Right? So how do we how do we how, how do we protect our poor programmers from that? Well we can give them something that, that hides that complexity. That's part of what we're doing. And then, finally, and I alluded to this already, there's a lot of data standards out there. Dublin Core, um, uh, IEEE LOM, uh, the IMS content packaging specs, SCORM, right? Complex world. How, how do you create a, 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 um, um, uh, uh, a service definition that, that allows for that Complexity to exist, but makes it a little simpler for the for the application developer to get their arms around it. Um, the demo we've been showing is is actually an application that we're in the process of polishing. The uh, the user interface you're going to see here is pretty pretty nutso, but it's uh, it's going to get better. Um, internally, we're calling this um, the DR Inspector. And the idea is, as we start getting implementations of digital repositories, we'd like an application to allow you to inspect it and do some things with it. You know, at the very least, to test whether it conforms to the to the um, um, the uh, API. So the idea here is, I launch this application, and um, uh, it's a Java desktop application. And one of the first things it does is it went into its environment and said, "Okay, what are the digital repositories that I have access to?" Right now, I just have two digital repository implementations loaded locally on this machine, so I'm not using the network here. But this could be a digital repository that's using the um, uh, search and retrieve web service that uh, that uh, the OCLC has just produced. Uh, it could use any number of, of, of things and beyond the network. These two happen to be local. The OKI service interface definition allows me to do a lot of things with these repositories. I can when I click on this, the code in the back end is basically going to this particular repository and saying, tell me something about yourself. Um, what asset types do you hold? What info types, this is actually metadata, right, do you, um, uh, do you deal with? Um, data representation type is something from an older version of this, so we won't talk about it. But um, but the idea being that uh, th these are all things that, that we haven't defined in OKI. Right? These are things that it's a community of data specifiers. We need to uh, uh, we, we need to identify, specify, and 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 rally around. Uh, OKI is saying that's fine. That's another sort of activity, and a lot of this has already happened. Um, so for this demo, I've created we, we've created uh, uh, just five different types of metadata that don't correspond to anything that exists. Right, so we have header metadata, log metadata, IP metadata, presentation and filing metadata, the stuff we made up. But that, that, think of that, that could be Dublin Core, IEEE LOM, it could be anything that we want it to be. Click on this repository, that repository reports back to me a different set of information. This is all very useful information from an application developer's perspective because then the application developer can, you know, th th this is a general application, but if I had an application that only dealt with SCORM content, 
I'd ignore all the repositories that didn't have score content, and I don't concentrate on the ones that do. So these are the decisions as an application developer I can now, I can now um, look at. Um, the API, this, this by the way, is a repository of three assets, so it's a very small one. Uh, however, I, I can use the, the OKIDR um, uh, searching, uh, um, uh, oops, I think I have to capitalize D, uh, the, 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 the searching methods to, to search. So if I type in daisy, it'll only show me the daisies. This, this is all going to get better. The application that we're planning for um, July looks a lot more like, say, a uh, Sherlock type type application where I can choose the repositories I want to search against and that sort of thing. But it gives you an idea. And if I then um, click on this, uh, let's see, the African Daisy repository, I can actually look at it. Um, and what this is showing me then is is this asset, and part of the and part of the 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 the, the uh, OSID now that an asset is also uh, uh, an interface. Uh, I can ask this asset, tell me what your what your different metadata types. Show me your metadata. Again, this could be Dublin Core or anything. Here we have this header stuff, custom log, IP, presentation. So you you, you get a sense. The, the 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 service definition itself is really meant to to take this complex world of of um, digital repositories in this case and and distill it and filter it and, and make it easier for a developer to 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 deal with um, and just finish up a few more slides here and then I'll do the other demo and then try to get off stage um, something I want to I mentioned this this is the way we tend to think about things uh, there are service definitions, like the ones OKI is doing. There are data definitions. Uh, we tend to think about these things now as domain profiles. Um, so in a, in a particular domain, let's say it's educational software, uh, we will make decisions about what, service, what services we're going to support and what um, metadata or, or, or data specifications. Um, at some point, we tie those to a, to a or what we call a technology profile and come up with what we're calling application profiles. This is part of the vocabulary we're using to help tease apart these, these interoperability problems. Seen another way, um, some of you may have seen these slides before, uh, you know, we're looking at in the, in the top here, in the domain profile space, again, service definitions and data definitions, two key things we're looking at currently as we're planning uh, and, and supporting OKI development activity are technology choices. Things like, is this Java, is this C-sharp, are web services in there, what's going on? Uh, and then what I'm calling UI or application framework choices. Okay, I want, I think Phil talked about this a little bit, I want to make sure that the applications I build not only talk to services, but also can interact with each other. So if I'm in, a, if I'm in a, um, an assessment and I want to, and, 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 and that assessment wants, well, let's say I'm, I'm in a chat environment and somebody sends me an assessment, I want to click on that assessment and go to the assessment environment to take the assessment. Well, that was an application talking to another application as opposed to a service. So uh, UI and application frameworks are what allow us to do that. Portals are a good example of, a, of that sort of thing. Um, as we think about dimensions of interoperability, the, the problem space can expand out pretty quickly. So let's assume that we've chosen a service in question like digital repositories. There are a lot, more than just four, there, 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 there are a lot of, 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 of domains 
in which we might want to define data for that ser for that service uh, definition. Schools K through 12 uh, may have different data needs than higher ed, within corporate training, within government training in the U.S. as opposed to in 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 the U.K. or Australia or France or wherever. Um, so these these things expand out very quickly. We can make technology choices. We're doing this in Java. We're doing this in Perl. We're doing this. Um, uh, trying to do something via web services to get some cross-language stuff. Um, and finally, we start making choices about UI. Um, in OKI's case, we've, we've concentrated on this branch of, of, of the tree uh, for the actual implementation work we're doing. We're looking at the higher ed domain and, and, the, and the key um, uh, specifications there. We've chosen Java currently for all of our development efforts. And we're doing work uh, uh, through the types of interactions that uh, Craig Counterman and, and Chuck Severance and, and others from, the, uh, from our core partners are looking at the portal domain and some of the work we're starting to do to think about how to build better desktop applications where components can interact with each other. So we've chosen two areas to, to concentrate on there. So I want to show one last thing that's real quick. Um, and unfortunately, I have to show off a separate machine. Um, any questions as I switch machines? Or is lunch setting in? Um, why do you have to switch machines? <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain that. Uh, Right. That's that's again. I alluded to the work that. Um, the I'm sorry. So the. Um, whoops. The uh, the comment had to do with the fact that uh, all the services we're dealing with are are infrastructure and enterprise services. We we aren't specifying anything around um, around tool interoperability, how tools fit together into a into a um, common user in experience. Right. Um, that is not something that we are planning to specify. Uh, however, it is something that we have this group that you've heard about, the Michigan, Indiana, MIT, and Stanford. We're the developers of Stellar and Coursework and Chef and OnCourse are working together to try to come up with um, uh, some solutions for that, looking at um, things like the JSR 168 for, for, um, uh, for portals. Uh, looking at how uh, we can leverage XML in a presentation layer. It's not something that OKI is going to specify, at least not in this iteration. Uh, uh, and, and again, we're, we're doing some very interesting stuff now on the desktop side. How can we create components that interact intelligently? Um, both of these are directions that, uh, that uh, there's some interest in various communities and us pursuing, and we might, we might do that. But at this point, we're, we're, we really want to concentrate on getting the service architectural stuff out there and, and get people using it, and then try to develop the communities around how we do the the, the next sort of granular types of um, um, uh, interoperability.
First question is, what is OKI doing for you today? Yeah. Right. I mean, I need stuff. I and, developing. Right. You know, I'm not in the business of I'm in the business of providing Right. And part of the answer to that question gets to the answer to this question. Uh, and I heard you ask, ask you know, can I take a component of Stellar and plop it into OnCourse? Not and plop, plop it into. Okay. I mean, Okay. So, so you might want something like what I'm about to show. So, so, so let's say that we've created an application like Tufts View, which I wish I had a more recent version of. Um, uh, the promise of OKI is that if your new course management system is is conforming to these 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 low level services, that you should be able to pop another application into the environment and just have it work. Right. Um, we're not there yet with you, certainly, because the product you've developed isn't there yet. Right. Right now, it's 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 the, the the projects that are moving rapidly toward getting to the point where they can interoperate as stovepipes still, as opposed to sharing components. Right. That would be Stellar and Coursework and OnCourse 2 and, um, and Chef. And I mean, I, I can say that there are some vendors who are working very actively in this space. Right. Yours is not one of them yet, because no. I haven't heard from their developers. Well, and you won't, because we'll look at them there. Okay. We don't yet. Uh, that that's something that uh, I think we. You didn't even know who all was in. You know, the right. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah
that's what. So, so what we're doing in July is we're bringing together a number of the folks who we know have pieces, uh, including um, our own reference implementations, some of the stuff that we hope Apple and Sun are going to bring into the room, some of the stuff we hope that WebCT and maybe Blackboard is going to bring into the room, Chef, Stellar, Coursework. Don't know about OnCourse yet. The um, uh, uh, the Tufts View tool. Uh, the work being done at, at, uh, at uh, Cambridge University on uh, SCORM players. Right now, that's it. The, the, those are the folks who, who, who I'm concerned about getting to the table. Others who come will be great. But remember, we're bringing about 200 people around that table. And part of our goal is to encourage folks to say, look, here's what's happening. Here's what you can do with it. Now you should go off with your projects and try doing the same thing. So you're at a cusp right now. You're, if, if you're looking for an end user application, that is fully OKI compliant, you're not going to find it right now. You're going to find a number of them that are. Right. Right. That's what it takes, and, and that's the tipping point problem that I think we have with all these sorts of things, is to push it up the rest of the hill till we get enough stuff out there that people say, ah, that's what it is, that's how it affects me. Do you think that's going to happen in July? I think that's going to be the beginning of it in July. Which Cambridge is that meeting at? Like, Our Cambridge. <laughs> Ours. <laughs> <laughs> They use building blocks. Mm -hmm. A little of that. I think, I think it's going to start with, for us, with the, the bigger vendors first coming on board before some of those little vendors are going to feel confident in, in, in throwing. I know that from the discussions I've had with, with Blackboard folks, for instance, part of the concern they get from the little vendors is, you know, I want to write this tool on building blocks, but I don't want to write it again for whatever WebCT does and again for whatever direct to learn does. Uh, so that's what we're hearing from the small companies, too. But, but nobody's actually been working with None of those companies you mentioned are beginning to work with the OKIs. We have, we have a few folks, like the folks at the, uh, the Learning Objects Network. They're doing a lot of work with SCORM stuff. Are starting to, to look at the DR API for a lot of stuff they're doing. But let me uh, respond to that in a different way also. There are a, lot, uh, a gazillion people who want the software to send us that we're really interested in wanting to. We don't have the capacity to respond and engage with them as we want to. And we don't think it's wise either. And one of the reasons why this IMS engagement is so useful is because we can put it out there and any vendor of this market can look at it. It's, it's also a matter of capacity and having something real around which you can have a conversation. Because everybody wants it. You know, it's just like, I mean, we looked at, the, is this right or not? We looked at the website. They said they're okay, I comply. I don't believe it because they haven't talked to us yet. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, well, they, they, they I, I hope that they took IMS up on its offer to allow them to be 90-day trial members, in which case they have access to all this stuff. Uh, but, uh, but actually, because they're doing all their work in old Microsoft stuff, too, they can't, they can't be. It's, We've taken them off. Yep. Yep. That's because what was up there was old, and we're getting ready for our SourceForge release. If, 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 Where you're finalizing them, they're not undergoing as much review as they were before? Not to be. That's a good thing. It's. I guess I would just say it would be that they would be just whatever, your current stuff would be. Well, it has to do with. No, 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 no. It, 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 it's managing a community concerns. We're, we're, we're opening this up slowly. Right now, about 130 entities have eyes on this stuff, and that's keeping us busy enough. Right? IMS member site, members have it. If you are an IMS member, you can go to the IMS site to the OKI Resources Forum and find the latest builds of everything. Um, I mean, I'll offer to anybody in this room who wants to get the latest Java doc today, I, I can give it to you. Uh, you can start looking at it. But uh, we're, very, we're being very careful how we grow the community right now because it is, it is very difficult to keep responding to the people who have interest or comments or concerns. So we're trying to get a lot of that, uh, trying to get 99% of the problems ferreted out before we go for the public release. Just real quick, um, Tufts, th this is an old mock-up, about a year old. Uh, they promised us a new, actually a demo app, uh, uh, in the middle of this month, and we're meeting with Tufts this week to, to confirm how they're doing. Um, the reason I can't, I have to do it on a PC is because I wrote the mock-up to only run under Java, in Java under Netscape 4.x on Windows. So it's a good mock-up, though. Uh, there's nothing behind. There's nothing in the back end of this. It's just a user interface mockup. It gives you an idea of what what Tufts is is doing. Um, they looked at the state of of uh, uh, LMSs, and they looked at the authoring environments for for what they're calling concept map creation. The idea idea is that most most LMSs have some sort of uh, uh, facility for uh, taking ideas and organizing them and adding content to them, and and then of course. Students can come to the LMS and, and, and navigate through that. Um, what they found is in working with their faculty, is, is a lot of their faculty are looking for uh, uh, interfaces that are much richer to do this sort of thing, that, that following through a bunch of cascading forms where you're filling out metadata and, and you can't really see as you go is, is not what, what they want. So the type of user interface that they wanted to do is, is, more, is more like this, where I can actually um, you know, create a concept by... In this case, you know, creating a node, and I can create a link from that concept to another concept by uh, adding a link, and I can do th neat things like like collapse whole branches of the tree to make it easy to navigate this, and I can do neat things like, uh, let's say, right-click on a node to add metadata to it, to link it to content, to do whatever. But I might want to use this only as an authoring tool, and I might want my students then to see it via their LMS, right? That's where OKI comes in, because what we're 
promising and we hope to deliver on here is that when Tufts View goes out the door, that I could begin to distribute distribute a version of it as a um, uh, as, an, as an authoring tool for my faculty, um, and they could know that they do this and they use a graphical environment and, and create this concept map and do whatever they want. And when they press save or when they do whatever, they don't have to worry about taking a then a, a content package and moving it over to the LMS and installing it. But that's all happening via service interactions in the back end. Um, so it's a very exciting project. Um, Tufts promises us that by the middle of this month they're going to have a demo version of this that runs in a regular Java you know, 2.0 environment that I can run on my Mac um, that, uh, uh, that not only will, will, will uh, have a better look and feel, but will also be linked dynamically into their Fedora uh, library back end. Uh, so this is going to be a very key uh, application I think for people to start to see, to start to understand what we're doing. I mean, a piece of this is if I'm in an application like this, I think somebody alluded to it earlier, and I double click on a node or right click on a node and I want to search for content to add to that node, I don't want to then launch a web browser and go into you know, uh, uh, repository browsing environments and remember a URL and copy and paste that back. I actually want a, an interface that's consistent with view. Maybe it's the interface that we wrote for the DR inspector, right? That comes up, it allows me to, to um, uh, to uh, search against multiple repositories, to, to gather my results, to decide which one I want, to highlight it, to click attach, and there it is, right, without having to go through the rigmarole of, of, of going through a web interface. So that's really what we're trying to do here, is, 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 is make these multiplicity of applications work, work together much more seamlessly than they do now through this service-based model. That's all I have. Yeah. The Tufts tool will be available as an open source tool. That's uh, it, it's Mellon funded as well. They have a year and a half worth of effort that started in January. They're moving very rapidly on it. We have uh, 0.5 FTE, 0.25 FTE helping them to do that, and we actually let them steal one of our consultants as well. So. Uh, uh, they, 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 they got a leg up in, in, in doing this. So uh, we, we were surprised to hear they're going to have stuff for us this month, uh, but we're very, very happy about that. So, but no, that's all going to be open source. Okay. Continuing our Apple product demo. <laughs> Ooh. Whoops, this is wrong thing. That's my cell phone. Uh oh. So, what time are we supposed to wrap this up, VJ? Uh, we're supposed to be done at 3.15, but we're running late, right? Yeah, 2.30 is when it's eventually done. Okay. Um, yeah.
This, 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 this reminds me of, you know, there was a meeting I was at, or giving a presentation to Oxford last year, and I was the last speaker of the day for the entire conference, and I had 10 minutes to go through all of the state of e-learning in the United States, and I was the person between everybody and the pub. So now I'm between everybody and a bio break. So I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. Um, to kind of give you a little bit of, of additional information here, getting a little deeper into the nouns and plumbing theme that we seem to be going through. Um, on the standards work of the IEEE 1484 Standards Committee, um, the Learning Technology Standards Committee, um, kind of give you a little bit of background as to you know, why, why the Standards Committee started uh, way back when. Um, there was an acknowledgment among the different folks that there was, we're dealing with a diverse marketplace in terms of learning. And that marketplace being vendors out there producing different products, not only in the higher education sector, but across industry, across government, across different sectors around the world. And if you take a look at those different types of learning sectors, from corporate training to, again, higher education, K-12, uh, uh, what is it, um, lifelong learning, etc., these are areas that, in some cases, we have never really considered overlapping with us, but, in, but as increasingly the materials, the content, the different types of, of information, the different types of tools tend to overlap and begin to bleed into these different spaces. Of course, the globalization of learning, um, that, is, that is really becoming true in the sense of the European Union and some of the directives that are coming out of the European Commission on interoperability between all sorts of systems over there, making sure that information can move freely within Europe. The interoperability, of course, of systems across border, of systems and across borders, as I mentioned, not only in that area, but also in areas such as uh, in uh, the Far East. Um, there's a lot of efforts that are going on over there trying to you know, maintain uh, interoperability and compatibility between systems in China and Japan. Um, also, another thing that, that was motivating the, the formation of the standards group is in the Far East, a lot of efforts that are funded by the government will not be funded unless they happen to be based in an international standard. The notion of a person, personal learning system and, and of course, student-centered learning, those two things go hand in hand. This is that the personal learning system idea is really coming out of, as of late, um, from the Defense Department, the idea that that the uh, an individual um, in sense of lifelong learning, actually the, the learner should be at the center of the whole thing, not necessarily a student, but you should then evolve a system around the individual and that individual should drive the learning process and everything should come to them as opposed to the learner going to the other system, which is a little different spin on what we've thought about in terms of student-centered learning. The group was formed back in 1996 um, some folks from IEEE, Microsoft, Edutool, etc., Osaka University, Carnegie Mellon, MITRE, and the U.S. Army, and decided, you know, maybe we should do something about this. It's about the same time IMS got started. And um, essentially it's grown. There's about 200 participants worldwide. However, the U.S. higher education representation is pretty light. There's only about four or five of us that are really actively involved in the Standards Committee. Um, it's kind of a bit of a weight on, on, on those of us that are uh, doing that. Um, but our first standard actually was released in June 2002, which was the Learning Object Metadata Standard. The different types of relationships and groups that we work with, you know, acronym BINGO, we pretty much touch with everybody. Lots of memorandums of understanding, lots of formal and informal relationships. 
Um, and a lot of these are places where the base documents for the development of the standards, of the nouns, if you will, um, come out of, or in some cases move forward to. So there's some standards work, there's some work that was done in the IEEE group that has been forwarded on to, uh, for example, SC36 of the ISO, uh, IEC Joint Technical Committee 1, on uh, various learning technology, teaching and learning standards. Um, and some of those pieces actually are very much uh, part of things that we handed off were things that were seen as greater than what the IEEE should be doing or um, are a different technical nature than where the standards group has moved. The Learning Technology Standards Committee um, really has moved much more toward the data end of things and less towards the things that, that were just covered previously, which was much more of APIs and system interactions, et cetera. The ISO is tending to take up much more of the systems type of work. So what are the current projects that we're working on? The first one is the architecture and reference model, uh, 1484.1. It's really a high-level specification. It was the first project that, that was put together. Um, it is actually going out, I believe, for ballot and should be standardized um, soon. Um, the idea was it was just a conceptual framework to help guide folks in designing training and learning systems based on, um, again, this idea of a personal learning system or a student-centered model. Um, here's your gratuitous architectural diagram. Don't ask me to explain it. I'm not part of the working group. Um, but there it is. Uh, the next standard we've been working on, which is the one that should be coming out also shortly, is the Computer Managed Instruction Standard, uh, 1484.11. Um, dot one and dot two. These pieces represent plumbing, nouns and plumbing, and are actually pieces that you'll find buried inside of SCORM 1.3. The process here, how this all got started, was the uh, airline industry CBT consortium um, had their specification for computer managed instruction, and they wanted to move it forward. Uh, they were actually being pressured a little bit by uh, the Department of Defense. Um, you know, the Department of Defense tends to buy a lot of aircraft. Um, and they really wanted to see that specification standardized in such a way so that it could be sustained in the longer term. And so they asked the IEEE, or essentially submitted the CMI spec as the base document for 1484.11.1. And it is now approaching um, essentially standardization. And, it, and if you take a look at the work uh, of the ADL SCORM group, you'll find that it is referenced inside of SCORM 1.3. There's a lot of confusion with regard to the standards work that we're working on, as well as some different uh, initiatives, especially around SCORM. And I, uh, Wilbert actually had, had characterized this quite nicely. He said, many learning technologists seem to wonder whether to stick with the original CMI, bet on the uh, SCORM or IMS content packaging plus simple sequencing, or wait for us to get our act together at the IEEE. But in reality, really, these are all, all these different efforts are just part of SCORM. If you take a look at SCORM, LOM, IEEE 1484.12, is listed in there as a part of SCORM. The AICC spec, which is part of SCORM, is now being standardized to become an official uh, internationally accepted standard that is part of the overall SCORM definition. Well, if you start including these different pieces, the IMS pieces, and you talk about some of the work from Ariadne and Alec, et cetera, coming together in this SCORM object model, who's wrangling this? Who's actually trying to make sure as standardization efforts and specification efforts move forward that things don't begin to break? 
And what we've done then, starting in June, actually on June 20th, is the first uh, CMI SCORM advisory group of the IEEE and these particular uh, parties getting together around a table to talk about SCORM to make sure that things don't break. And this kind of gets back to stuff that uh, Jeff was pointing out about the problems of having the specifications out there for OKI and then pulling them back. I mean, as those sort of fine-tuning things happen at the end, that's where things start breaking and start falling apart. And that's in the case of the standards development where we've slowed down. And it's taken a long time to get the standards process moving again is because we're looking at the particular instances along the way. If you tweak, for example, 1484.11.1, which is the data model, just a little bit, it may actually affect several SCORM implementations along the way. So you don't necessarily want to go and take that risk. And so the advisory group is being pulled together to make sure that that whole SCORM initiative stays on track. The first standard was 1484.12.1, the learning object metadata standard, which is really a, a conceptual schema for learning objects. There are three additional uh, projects underway. The .2 project, which is an ISO 11404 binding of the model, the XML binding of .3, and the RDF binding of .4. The XML binding by far is the one that's furthest along because that's being influenced and driven by the SCORM initiative. SCORM is basically wants that inside. That's one of the models that's very important to them. Um, they're helping to sort of really push that along, along with the group from Ariadne in Europe. What LOM describes, what the learning object metadata standard describes is really a very basic metadata structure covering these categories, which is sort of a general category describing the learning object in itself, the life cycle of the learning object. Of course, if you got to have metadata, you have to have meta-metadata about the metadata. So you've got to include that somewhere in there. Um, the technical requirements of that learning object, the educational requirements of that object as well. So essentially the pedagogical piece is included. There's that, I think there's four four data elements in the digital rights area. We decided not to tackle that in LOM 1.0. That's a big, huge hole. Um, a relationship uh, area in terms of how a learning object relates to another learning object. Annotations, essentially how the learning object is used to be able to capture that. And then finally, a classification of a learning object, which would allow it to apply to any classification system that's out there so you could find the thing. One thing that's worth noting is that everything inside the LOM object is optional. You're not required to do anything except state of, uh, appropriately stated LOM instance. So if you, if you say, if you use the general category 1.1 and you put down a field in there that represents a LOM field, that would be compliant. That's okay. But you don't have to put everything in there. There's not a requirement of a certain number of items, etc. When I talk about the Dublin Core interoperability, there was a lot of effort put into dealing with the 15, 15 Dublin Core elements to make sure that LOM directly mapped into those elements. And so there's actually an appendix in the standard that maps specific items to the LOM 15 so that we can make sure that when you think about using LOM or you want to tie into as many Dublin Core-based systems that are out there, or library systems kept, kept a lot of librarians happy, um, you can actually do that without trying to figure out exactly what LOM said versus what Dublin Core and some of these other initiatives have said. Uh, .18 platform media profiles is, a, is an effort right now to really get at the crux of, of a lot of our problems that we talk about building something on Java that only runs on Netscape on, on 4 on a, a Microsoft platform 
is to how to abstract off functionality from implementation in a way of referencing essentially browser or client technology in a web environment. Um, as we go out and specify and we put together RFPs, you say, well, you've got to be compliant with a particular browser. Well, that can change, and who knows really what's embedded inside. Browsers and those types of tools are built upon standards and specifications. So how can we reference that in a standardized way that you could put that down as an RFP requirement that basically vendors should be able to understand, as opposed to doing a moving target of saying, gee, build 1.0 of Safari, or version 1.0 of Safari in a Macintosh, build number 56. What is in it? You don't know. But you can say HTML4, JPEG 2000. You can go through and, and specify these particular things. Or you can also go and take a look at fully published specifications, a standardized way of referencing that for things like PDF, for example, PDF 1.3, being able to include those sorts of, of items in there. One that is currently uh, starting up was 1484.20. And we're looking at possibly using an IMS-based document on that for competency definitions. This has been something I know has been talked about in the United States for quite some time. It's really being talked about in Europe, and they're pushing it quite heavily, is essentially developing a standard data model for competency definition records. And then taking a look at not only using, let's say, the IMS-based document for that, but taking a look at the other initiatives out there, such as the uh, HRXML um, initiative among human resources folks, and see how we can sort of pull those items together into a coherent uh, data model that then can be used between not only learning systems, but also HR systems and other places where you may want to look up and say, gee, does this person have a driver's license? You may be, maybe you're doing some sort of training simulation and you need to have them to have a driver's license. There is no real clean way of doing that other than the person walking in and saying, I've got a driver's license. But it'd be nice to be able to have a system to, be, to go through and query that and be able to determine the authority of that. As you know, in terms of dealing with authentication and authorization, that's an absolute nightmare. And that's why, really, people have not moved forward with it. We've decided to pick up the flag and do a first cut at it and try to carry it forward. Right now, which is shifting uh, from being a study group into a full-blown project, is a digital rights expression language group. Um, the idea here is to develop a, an informative standard on digital rights, specifically for education and training. Uh, that initiative uh, originally was going to be one to say, well, gee, let's develop yet another expression language. And we decided that probably would be a bad idea because there's a lot of other initiatives that are out there, um, most prominently the most recent one being MPEG-21, and to see how we can express. So the project is to see how we can express the needs of education in terms of rights management within an existing standard. And why it's an informative document would be, here's the collection of requirements. Here's the different things that are necessary in order to implement digital rights for, let's say, higher education or K-12 or corporate training. And it's not included within an existing standard. So it's not included with MPEG-21. Here are the recommended extensions to that standard to move it forward. At some point, if that seems to become a rec uh, an accepted practice, then turn around and standardize that. But to get something out there that sort of defines what digital rights means for the, the education um, space. Right now, we're looking for rights expression requirements across the board. I'm actually the point person for uh, the area of higher education. And we're trying to sort of collect 
different requirements, rights requirements that we can use to begin development of this informative document. So if anybody's got some grand, brilliant ideas on how to solve this problem, please let me know. The last group, which is, which is on the verge of being formed into a study group, is one of a way, essentially developing a standard to express uh, training simulations. Now, this is coming out of the MITRE Corporation and the Department of Defense. There are simulation uh, standards out there, but not necessarily in a teaching and learning context. And if you think about applying that sort of the military model of hands-on learning, and you take that into the classroom, we're asking our students more, or our faculty are asking our students to go out in the field and do things, to collaborate with one another, to work with data sets, real data sets, do stuff out there. It's not that much different than working with high-end simulations of the military. And so trying to sort of capture that in a sense um, that will allow it to be sort of integrated with the learning system, to be integrated with the data collection on, on the student record systems, et cetera, is something that this effort is looking at. And it'll start with the military, simply because they've been doing a lot of that and have some models internally on it. But how can that extend and go beyond that? Because if you think of even uh, aircraft mechanics, for example, uh, you may have sort of high-end synthetic simulations for aircraft mechanics for testing engines and learning how to rebuild or test an engine. In engineering programs, that is going to end up being the same case. Why do we worry about this stuff? Well, interoperability, that's been a big theme. And interoperability on a lot of different levels. We're talking about interoperability between systems, obviously. It would be nice to have a learning object over here be able to work with a learning object over there. Or Serge's learning object work with my learning object, and at least we have a common vocabulary so that when I pick it up, my system or I understand what it is that you just gave me or loaned to me through a digital rights system. Interoperability across sectors. Increasingly, industry is involved with higher education. And so if you think about that, there may be places where particular academic programs will overlap with the corporate program. Just think of the simple internship that can turn into a complex learning experience. And now if a student has picked up through an internship a particular competency, how do you capture that? And how do you make sure that that becomes part of the student record that other people can understand? As I mentioned in terms of the European Union, the interoperability between nations sort of making sure that if somebody goes through and has a student record developed in Poland, that it works in Germany, that that can actually happen. That the data can exchange not only from, from a bit-to-bit -bit standpoint, but also semantically. I mean, that, it was interesting working on the learning object metadata standard and how to essentially express all the items within that standard so that Folks in Japan were not offended by what was put in by the French, which was not offended by the people from Finland, the Canadians, and then, of course, us in the United States, we didn't care. So how do you sort of make that all fit together? That ends up becoming a real problem in terms of standardization, and it's a place where this can happen, and there is actually accepted ways of working with it. When you deal with standards, you're dealing with stability, but you are dealing with stability at a, at a significant cost. It took us four and a half to five years to develop the learning object metadata standard. That is a long time. A lot of stuff happened in five years. The most interesting stuff of that standards development happened in the last two to three years, when we basically took the learning object metadata model and said, that's monolithic and nobody can implement it. 
We piled the bindings in. We piled everything on top of the data model. We thought for a second, wait a second, gee, the world has moved on, and maybe we should pull the bindings off, have the data model standardized, so that you can continue to refine and develop new bindings as the language of the week, as the, as the new philosophy and how to deal with this of the month comes along, that you could develop the standard for that, but the data model can remain sound. But it does take time. In the case of CMI, you're dealing with not only the idea of standardize something, but you have to take a look at the ripple effect of once it's standardized. And you also are developing a fairly rigid, almost can be considered legal document. And so what you say in that document, kind of like writing an opinion of the Supreme Court, what you say, and you may have misstated something in line four, could end up haunting you for a long time after that, because pretty much it's set in stone until you go through a revision process, which may take up to a year to two years. But it is sustainable. I mean, that's one of the nice things. I mean, those, those that are deal, have dealt with, you know, the, gee, who's he, what's it file format of the month last week, and a faculty member went through and developed their entire course in this thing that you no longer can get a viewer for. Um, and we've all dealt with that. This is one of the things with standards that's very nice, is that this is published. It's there. You can get access to it. There's a lot of intellectual property issues that are wrapped up in this that are dealt with through the standards process. In a sense, something that's put together, we can take a look at why people use MPEG, why people use JPEG, is that that's a published standard, and you can get back to it. You can get the code and figure out how to decode the thing many years later than when the item was originally published. Whereas if you take a look at a flash file, flash 1.0, and try to do something with that, if it hasn't been migrated along, the chances of successfully dealing with the, interaction, the interactivity within a Flash 1.0 file today is really in question because it has evolved a lot and there's really no way to get back to it because who controls it? Ultimately Microsoft, or ultimately Macromedia controls it. And then finally we get into the whole idea in terms of standardization, which are the international and legal issues. Um, as I mentioned, in the Far East, it's really important to build things for them to build things upon standards, upon internationally accepted standards. They tend to not deal with specifications issues. They'll participate with them, but they won't actually implement them at, a, at a, an initiative level, a government initiative level. So in that sense, there's an obligation now to do some of that. And of course, the legal issues is gets into inter intellectual property. You can also hide behind the standards in the sense of saying, you know, does this, this comply to this standard? And here is the legal document that everybody can get access to, as opposed to saying it's it's something that's hidden that is a buried within micro uh, macromedia or Microsoft thing that you really can't access. So there's the sort of overview of the plumbing and nouns piece of the standards. Uh, any quick questions? We and the, all of our focus has really been on looking at MPEG 21. It's really looking at MPEG 21 because it deals with all those sticky RAA entertainment issues, and we don't have to deal with those again. Well, we do, but that industry has dealt with them first. The, the question was, is I mentioned uh, HRXML and, and how that would relate quite possibly to the uh, work that we would be doing within the IEEE on this. It's too early to tell. 
because one of the things we're waiting on is um, uh, discussions with IMS about using potentially their competency model um, as the base document, at which point it sort of changes it. We use that and see what we can layer on from HRXML as opposed to the other way around. So, so it's a little early to tell right now. DJ? As users, I can appreciate the significance of standards mm -hmm. because basically I want to locate content, right? I want to search for content in easy ways. I want to find it mm -hmm. and I want to be able to use it. Right. And all that is enabled standards. As a producer, as a vendor, uh, standards represent a cost to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I keep thinking, uh, what is? Uh, how do you motivate as a as a recipient community? How do we motivate uh, vendors and producers? So there's that that's part A, no? Okay. As uh, friendly modified by. So that's that's one. The other thing is, when we talk about standards, especially in the learning world, uh, despite our claims for pedagogical neutrality and so on, we mm -hmm. all the specs for standards. Right. But uh, at that level, I think there's they always they always come with pedagogical baggage. Yes. And uh, and that's what I think you know I find in all when when we're talking with a bunch of educators. Their aversion to standards uh, at that level comes from the fact that they feel like something is being thrust upon them. Right. Um, so the first piece was, I mean, what what motivate would have motivate vendors and other folks to deal with standards, and then also from the financial aspects as well. And then the second piece is that it is, you know, what about it being a limiting factor? And I think. For, let me look at the second one first, and and it it can be a limiting factor. If I look at the history of this standards group, so take off my IEEE hat, put on my University of Chicago hat for a second, this group was doing all the wrong things until a couple of years ago. It was trying to develop standards on something we really didn't thoroughly understand. We still don't understand it today, and we didn't have enough accepted practice to be able to define what those standards should be. So if you look at it, we're at standard.20. But there was only six projects or so listed there. There are something like 14 projects that have disappeared because the model that was moving forward was one that, quite honestly, would have significantly and severely limited innovation. And I think one of the, one of the responsibilities that that group did not take was one where a standards organization needs to be responsible enough to understand where standards apply and where they don't. Where you, where you say, this is a specification, you let it be a specification, and when it sort of focuses in and settles into a spec, then take a look and see if it makes sense to standardize it. It still may not make sense. In the case of, of this, and what I think motivates folks and motivates vendors to adopt standards is when it settles. When you're not sitting there trying to develop your own data model to move forward, but when it gets to the point of when you move to these enterprise systems, you move to larger systems, you want to have a greater impact with your product, you have to hook to many more things, but you don't want to hook to a bunch of moving targets. 
We want to hook to something out there that is going to be reasonably accepted and stable because you don't want to go through and redevelop every time you turn around because the spec changed again. You don't mind doing that in terms of trying to develop a competitive advantage for your product, but if you're developing, let's say, content objects that are a part of a purchased uh, license, 10,000 objects for chemistry, you don't want to go through and have to redefine that for every platform that comes along. We don't want to do it for every WebCT, every uh, desire to learn, every, every Blackboard. What you want to do as a content vendor is develop it once and bring the value in the content development or maybe other ways in which once you're inside that system can interact with other tools, but that tie-in becomes very competitively important to you to tie it in. As you see, what's, what's falling apart and rapidly turning around is in the licensed content market for libraries. Every content vendor out there has got their own UI, own experience trying to get at their content. And now libraries have licensed tens of thousands of items, at least at our libraries, and there's so much overlap and so much confusion, you really don't know how to get to half those resources, and the libraries don't really know what they have licensed because there's no common way as of until late of trying to find out what's there. And so institutions are starting to push to say, hey, we, can't, we don't even know what we've got. Can we at least look at it from that common content piece? And then you bring your value in the licensing or other ways you might handle it behind the scenes. But as you tie into my world, here's a way of hooking into it. And you can specify that. It makes it easy for the vendor. And especially if the standard is designed in such a way that you can extend it, you can evolve it, you can change it so that as practice evolves, you can indeed add value to it that may inform the next version of that standard. That was also, I think, another key piece in this process is recognizing that this is a dynamic area you can't lock it in. You've got to let it evolve. Serge? Talking about sustaining integrity, it is in a vendor's vested interest to extend standards mm -hmm. in proprietary ways. There's a problem, for example, with IMS. I mean, Blackboard and WebCT will tell you where IMS is fine, but they'll also tell you, oh, and by the way, in our quizzes, had a question type that IMS hadn't covered in their quiz assessment mm -hmm. standard. So we've had to extend the standard, which means you can't, essentially, you can't import and export a quiz. Mm -hmm. How does a standards organization ensure, if it can, that that kind of activity is not going to take place or is going to take place in a controlled fashion? So the question was, how, do, how does the standard organization essentially, not necessarily control, but um, manage extensions so that it basically the standard doesn't fall apart as people extend it? Part of that is, and where we get into these legal issues part, is in writing the standard itself in terms of the conformance and compliance definitions that are in there. And that is that that probably I mean again for me in that experience of working through LOM was the most difficult thing was to develop the conformance statement of what it means to adhere to this standard. It's not enough to sort of be able to go to a plug fest turn it on and make it work. But it means that you have to make sure that when you extend this standard, you don't break anything else. Therefore, in the LOM standard, you cannot replace a data element with your data element. You can extend and develop a new data element, but there's no way you can say, well, I don't like your name element, so I'm going to come up with the Blackboard name element, and I'm going to take yours out. As soon as you have that, it starts falling apart. And in the conformance statement, if you say you conform to 1484.12.1, that means you haven't replaced a data element in there. You haven't replaced something in there. So if, you, if you're sloppy about that, it falls apart. But you see the problem with the fact that you never develop the learning object, that you mm -hmm. a set of, of standard-defined um, entities, 
extensions that you need. It, if that learning object really depends on those 20 extended objects which are allowed, you're essentially not going to be able to migrate that, that object from one course management system to another. You, you, you'll lose a, a critical component, a critical part. And that, and that gets, I think, gets back to the idea of, of what it means to conform to that. I mean, it's not enough to say you support it or that you get you ad, adhere to it. I mean, if there's not a defined conformance clause for those standards and specifications, it's really easy for them to break it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm definitely between now and the pub, so. Uh, so uh, thank you all, and what we'll do is, uh, uh, what are the remaining uh, questions we have, we'll pick it up in our uh, next session. I think it's very special close for for more discussions on how do you build communities, how do you have uh, uh, think about the architecture, I think thanks. I'll be taking the money. Thanks all the presenters. When are we coming back?